0: and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Just a bit of housekeeping stuff as we usually do at the outset of each show. We got a great response from our episode last week on John Ogden. People are in different camps on this case. A lot of people say he was mentally impaired, and I do believe that. I do believe Ogden was impaired. I just don't think it rose to the level of insanity. I think he planned this attack, and I think he planned to escape it with his autism and everything else going on in his life, the fact that he was bullied. But man, again, my real point in that episode was James Allenson, the victim in this case, is just totally forgotten. And it just breaks my heart into a million pieces. I look at that kid, Allenson, and I see my son. And actually, with Ogden, too, you know, they're both the same age or close to it within a year. And man, like that was a homicide, no doubt. It was also a robbery. Ogden robbed that family, the Allenson family, of a lifetime with their son. Man, it's heartbreaking. And yes, I had mentioned, I got a lot of emails on this case and about parole for John Ogden, and he should be up for parole probably this coming year, 2023, because of that 2013 federal decision. And on the heels of that, the Massachusetts Supreme Court issued guidance as well. So he should be up for a meaningful shot at parole. And a lot of people don't get it the first time around, and I think it's four or five years before you can be considered again. But I don't know. Do you want John Ogden behind you on the MBTA, right, where things can get testy, where not everything goes your way? Do you want him behind you, perhaps with a weapon in his bag? It's a big risk, right? I don't know if we should be willing to take that. I mean, what Ogden did was complete butchery of this kid just using the bathroom, you know, before he went to class. Allenson never bullied Ogden. I'd want to make that clear. He was a good kid. He didn't bully anybody. He was just in the bathroom using it. And John Ogden basically stalked him. He went into an empty bathroom and waited for someone to attack. No one came in. So he went up a floor to the next bathroom, And there's Allenson, you know? So this was planned. I don't know what people don't get about it. But all right, guys, we're on to the next one. But before that, and I should have done this at the outset, I wanted to wish everybody a very happy Christmas, a very merry Christmas, a happy Kwanzaa, and a happy Hanukkah. I don't know when Hanukkah falls this year, it varies, but if you're celebrating, please wish kindness on your neighbor, and we'll all do that. And if we did that i think we'd have a different world but merry christmas happy kwanzaa and happy hanukkah all right guys for this case you're gonna definitely have to jump into the wayback machine with me we're gonna set the dial for 1995 within the city of boston charlestown specifically it is november the weather is just starting to get crappy You know how it goes in the Northeast. You can really gut it out to about Thanksgiving. But after Thanksgiving, guys, it's a precipitous fall in temperatures. And man, by the time February rolls around, you wonder why you live here. But this is a case I think everybody in the New England area and maybe nationwide will remember. This is the massacre at the 99 restaurant in Charlestown, guys. Specifically happened on November 6, 1995. And there's a host of players in this massacre. It was, in fact, a massacre. Four people died. Five would have, but the gunmen ran out of bullets. Maybe I'm giving away the story here, but this was a total and utter bloodbath. And, guys, it happened just afternoon in a crowded 99 restaurant in Boston's Charlestown neighborhood. Charlestown is a tiny neighborhood located just outside the north end, and it's kind of isolated, and this area where the restaurant was was kind of a plaza. I believe it was right off Main Street in Charlestown. I think the deal with Charlestown is it's like one or two square miles, very tightly compact, and if you're from outside the city of Boston, that is where the Bunker Hill Monument is and it's kind of an iconic image for the city of Boston and I only address that to people outside of the city because everybody in Boston and probably New England knows where the Bunker Hill monument is and it commemorates the Battle of Bunker Hill which was actually fought on Breed's Hill which is one over from Bunker Hill but that's typically Boston right All right, guys, so it's 27 years ago. I can't believe this. It was a different Boston, a totally different Boston at that time. There was an organized crime gang war going on amongst the Italians. And during this time, Cadillac Frank Salemi was the godfather of Boston. I think the actual title is Underboss, right? Because The godfather at that time was out of Rhode Island, but Cadillac Frank took over the Jerry and Julo spot in the La Casa Nostra. And there was a faction within that that were wholeheartedly against Cadillac Frank, and it was a shooting war. Wherever they saw each other, they'd just start blasting. One of these hits on Cadillac Frank was at a pancake house an IHOP, International House of Pancakes. And the other crew just sees them. and they just start blasting back and forth. Cadillac Frank Salemi was hit in that exchange, and he later went on the lamb. And I think he was captured and brought back for trial. He's in the joint now. So one of the reasons I was kind of reluctant to do this case, it's an interesting case, but there's a lot of moving parts to it. There's so many victims and the killers themselves have a tremendous backstory. So let's do this. Let me take you up through the day, the afternoon of Monday, November 6, 1995, and tell you exactly what happened. Then I'm going to come back and tell you the stories of why it happened and kind of the milieu in which it did occur, right? It was just a different time in Boston. It changed pretty quickly thereafter, but It was 1995, what's that, 27 years ago now. I see some of this stuff on TV, guys, and you see the hairstyles, and I'm like, "Geez, that was like me back then, right? But this occurred in a 99 restaurant, and it was crowded for lunchtime. And there wasn't a lot of other restaurants around this area, so people kind of flocked to it. It was always packed, as I remember it. And also, if I remember correctly, there was some parking there. so. That's more to be said than the North End. There was really no parking to be had in that section of Boston, but there was a little bit near this 99 restaurant and it was popular. It was always packed, this place. And this was a Monday before Thanksgiving, beginning of the month, November 6th. Place was jammed. All right, guys. So it's just afternoon. Damien Clemente, age 20, and. Vincent Perez, similar age, I believe, go to the 99. They go in. They wait a little bit. They get seated. And a few minutes later, some other people arrive. And this party was a larger party. It consisted of five people. Robert Luisi Sr., age 56. His son, Roman Luisi, 25. Anthony Saro, who was the Luisi's cousin and Anthony Pelosi, who I think may be related distantly, but was in with this crew. There was also Ricky Saro, and they were seated at a booth, but they had to have walked by Damien Clemente and Vincent Perez. Unbeknownst to other diners at the 99 in Charlestown, Damien Clemente and Vincent Perez had a fight the night before. So this is Monday, November 6th. On the evening of Sunday, November 5th, Clemente and Perez have a street beef in the North End with Robert Luisi's crew. And just let me tell you a little bit about Robert Luisi and what his stature was in the North End. He was a made member of La Casa Nostra in the North End, and he ran a crew which consisted of those four other members that I had just mentioned. And I'm sure there'll be people to say, oh, this one wasn't involved. But that group at the table was either directly involved or tangentially involved in organized crime. Damien Clemente was also involved in crime. He wasn't a made member. His dad actually grew up with Robert Luisi in the North End, so they knew each other. And Perez was kind of an outsider in this, Vincent Perez, but he was the Clemente's cousin as well. So that night before, that Sunday night, just prior to this, Damien Clemente got into a street beef inside Villa Vittoria Cafe on Hanover Street. Now, Hanover Street in the north end is the main stroll through the Italian neighborhood in Boston, right? Little Italy. And it's a beautiful stroll, and that was a beautiful cafe. There were a lot of wise guys around. And I believe Joseph Frelato or Frelito was working for the Luisi family. And what the beef was over, Damien Clemente and his dad, and to a lesser extent, this kid Perez, were actually selling cocaine and acting as competitors to Casa Nostra. And there's another Luisi in this scenario, and I got to tell you about it. It gets confusing because there's a lot of people, a lot of moving parts in this story. Bobby Luisi was Robert Luisi's son. He's Robert Luisi Jr. They call him Bobby. He kind of split off from his family. Bobby Luisi was a made man, but he was made out of Philadelphia, out of the Merlino crew, out of Philadelphia. So, Bobby Luisi was kind of at odds with his dad, who was Boston Lacoste in Austria, and was doing a lot of the same things. And Bobby Luisi was running this crew with the Clementes, right? Damien and his father, Anthony. Anthony was 46 years old, and Anthony Clemente grew up, I think I said this just prior, with the Luisis in the North End. So, he was also a career criminal and they were at odds, and Anthony Clemente was with Bobby Luisi's crew, and of that crew, the only person to beat actual acosta Nostra was Bobby Luisi, I believe. Clementes were not, Damien was way too young, and Perez was kind of a hanger-on, if you will. So these guys are dealing a lot of coke, the Clementes, through, you know, their Patron, right? there, godfather, Bobby Luisi. And they're doing it out of the North End. And there's people who still believe that La Casa doesn't deal drugs. You'd be stupid to believe that at this point. It's been proven over and over that they do. It's proven in this case as well. So what Robert Luisi Sr. was trying to do was trying to get his son's crew Not to stop working drugs or whatever else, but to pay tribute to Luisi in the North End, you dig? So that was actually the beef. And Joseph ferlito that's what happened at the cafe with Damien the night before. And that's what led to this goddamn massacre. It's crazy, this little thing. So what happens on that Sunday night after that fight is, you know, the alarm goes out from... Bobby Luisi, and they get in contact with his dad, Robert Luisi, and they say Robert Luisi was actually looking for Bobby to kind of set up his guys. They wanted to rub out Damien. And it's not the first time that that's been sprouted around the North End because in later court documents, people were out kind of looking to kill Damien. I guess he was a hothead himself. He was a big, stocky kid. He was kind of fat, if you want to know the truth. But he seemed like rough and tumble and ready to go. And he had that street beef at Villa Victoria Cafe. But the long and short of it is Robert Luisi Sr. was pissed off. He's a made man in the North End. And his guys, his nephew, actually, Frelito, was just roughed up by Damien and Vincent Perez, right? So they were looking to do something about it. And Bobby Luisi, said he wasn't too worried about it he thought it would get straightened out and what bobby said to his crew the anthony clemente and damien clemente he said just stay out of the north end let things cool off so at about lunchtime, they decided to yeah we're going to stay out of the north end and go across the bridge to charlestown and hit the 99 and Lo and behold, the Luisi's show up at the same restaurant. Imagine that. So it looks like one may be stalking the other. That's how you'd look at this, right? And this is a deadly game. So Damien Clemente and Perez are already in the restaurant when that crew of Luisi's walk in. And so they think there's going to be trouble. And Damien Clemente calls his dad at home, who was afraid of exactly this situation. He thought the Luises were trying to whack Damien. And he was right, because again, in later court documents, they were talking about doing just that. And Anthony, he's an old timer. He knows this crew. He knows they'll hurt you. And he was going to prevent his son from being hurt. And what happened was Anthony Clemente leaves his house, and I believe it was in Medford, so it was only about 10 minutes away, and he gets there, and the Luisi crew is sitting down at the table, and he goes right over to them, and he says, you know, what's going on? What's all this? This is mere coincidence that these two groups are in the same restaurant. That's the strangest thing about this case, right? It's really happenstance, guys, but there would have been no telling Damien Clemente or Anthony Clemente that this was just a coincidence, right? Because it's life and death and boom. These guys said they want to kill me. We fought last night and here they are. And it was said that before Damien called his dad, Anthony, Roman Luisi saw the kids in the restaurant. They were sitting at a table in the larger group. The Luisi group was sitting in a booth and Roman was said to have made the shooting motion with his forefinger and thumb, you know, like a gun, pointing at Damien. And that's when Damien called his dad. His dad comes down and he goes right over. I mean, there's no fear among any of these people. And he goes right over to a table full of mafioso, right? And Roman was a pretty heavy hitter in those days. He was known as a killer, really, Roman Luisi. He was twenty five at the time. I don't know if he was a made member of La Costa Nostra yet, but I think he would already made his bones, if you know what I mean. So the guys start going at it. Anthony Clemente says words to the effect of, hey, what's going on with all this? And Robert Luisi says, it's your effing kid. And Clemente comes back and says, why is it always my effing kid? And at this point, Anthony Clemente would later testify that he saw, or he claims, I don't buy it, that Roman Luisi was reaching for a fanny pack, a leather fanny pack that he had tied to his waist. And in response to this threat, Anthony Clemente takes out his 9 millimeter and begins shooting people. And I believe he starts shooting Roman Luisi first, then Robert Luisi, and then just down the line. I'm going to put some of his testimony in the show notes. And, my God, it's a self-defense case, so he just lays it out there. He tells the story how he shot them, and right down the line, the only person to survive this bloodbath was Ricky Siro, and I believe Anthony Siro almost made it, but he was really executed by Clemente, and it's just brutal. He tells you right on the stand... I shot this one in the head and the only reason they all weren't killed is because he ran out of bullets. Robert Luisi's dead, Roman Luisi's dead, Anthony Saro, Anthony Pelosi, all gone, dead right in the booth right there. Guys, there's 50 people in this restaurant, can you imagine that? And this had been brewing, it was happenstance this one day, but this whole beef had been brewing, right, over and over. Robert Luisi was talking about at least roughing up Damien Clemente because you needed to pay tribute to him, and he wasn't having it. And he was kind of angry because his son, Bobby, was actually running this crew with Damien. You understand? So there was a lot of animosity bottled up in these two crews, and it was absolutely crazy. These were head shots. These were gut shots. There was blood everywhere in the '99 so you've been in these restaurants. I don't particularly like the 99. It would probably be the last place. I think I like Applebee's and Chili's over the 99, but everybody else seems to love it. And I've been in, you know, several of them. If you're going in for a burger, what's really the difference in any of those places, right? But they all seem to have this similar setup. booths on one side, tables in the middle, booths maybe on the other side as well. And this just happened in the middle of the dining room at the lunch rush and you don't want to call it downtown Boston, but close enough, right? My God. So people start running everywhere. Perez and Clemente hit the door. But what they didn't know was there was two Everett police officers who were sitting at the bar in plain clothes, eating lunch, and they were on break. I believe, from Charlestown Court where they were testifying, which is just blocks away. And so they were having lunch while, you know, the judge was doing his business or whatever. And this all happens right in front of them. And it just takes mere seconds. So the two cops at the bar activate themselves and chase Damien Clemente and Vincent Perez from the restaurant. Anthony Clemente seemingly got away. And as this shootout progressed, guys, Damien came over to the table, and he pulled out his 45, and ballistics would later confirm that Damien's gun had shot Robert Luisi, and it was believed to have been a fatal blast. So he went over when the shooting started and just started blasting as well. And just after that, all three of them hit the door. But the cops only noticed two of them. I think Anthony Clemente got back into his car and high tailed it out of there because he'd later go on to say he stopped somewhere in an alleyway, changed his shirt, got rid of the gun in the dumpster, and, you know, later went home or whatever. But I think Anthony Clemente was doing a crap ton of cocaine at this time and they were selling it. I don't know, by the pound, right? So it would stand to reason. I think he might have done this under the influence of drugs because he just went ape-ass, guys. He goes right from his house with the gun, and he was intent on killing all those people, all five of them. Sarah was lucky he escaped, right? He just butchered them, and he really didn't shed any tears about it. And, you know, I'll put this in the show notes. His testimony is amazing. It is so Boston, it makes you want to cry. Okay, so this madness spills outside the restaurant outside the 99 in the parking area, and the cops follow Damien Clemente and Vincent Perez out. So there's two Everett cops there. They were sitting at the bar eating lunch, and it was officers Robert Hall and Paul Durant, and they were in plain clothes, like I had said. So they chase them outside, and they demand that these two goofballs get down at gunpoint. They were both arrested with guns, I think. I know Perez had one as well. I don't know if he fired his weapon, but Damien did. So Officers Hall and Durant take them into custody, but there's almost a standoff in the parking lot because just around the corner there's two Boston cops who heard the gunfire, guys. There was 13 shots fired in this. It was a total massacre. So the Boston cops hear what's going on. And at one point, a pedestrian, a civilian says to a cop on a private detail, and I believe this was Thomas Hennessy of the Boston police, and it was also Stephen Green of the BPD. But Hennessy Somebody pulls him over, flags him down, and says, I just heard like 10 shots out of the 99. Hennessy gets in that guy's pickup truck. He commandeers the pickup truck and drives over because it was a little distance away. And he activates himself as a police officer. And he ends up drawing down guys on the Everett police because they're in suits because they're in court. But I believe it was Officer Hall holds out his badge. And everything is fine at that point, And I'll put that in the show notes as well. It was kind of a funny scenario when they were complimenting these police after the capture. So in just a few minutes, right, it's this massacre, this great work by local police in the restaurant, and then just by police out on the street, right? It's kind of insane. All of these events happen one after another. You know, and it's just a crazy thing. And I think the police commissioner at the time was Paul Evans, and somebody asked him, Was this a mob hit? Because everybody in Boston knew the name Luisi, right? They're pretty big in the North End, and they had been for years. So they asked Commissioner Evans, You know, is this a mob hit? He says, If this was a mob hit, it was the worst one ever. Four dead bodies in front of 50 witnesses. You know what I mean? And he's right. It was awful, and it, but it wasn't really a mob hat. It was this guy, Anthony Clemente, right? Just losing his S. I bet he had been boozing the night before. I bet he had been doing cocaine the night before, and it was all still in his system. And he said, F this. And it contributed to the mayhem that occurred in the 99 on November 6th, 1995. So as that day proceeds, right, pretty big day in Charlestown, Damien Clemente and Vincent Perez are lugged for homicide. And the next morning, at Damien's arraignment at Charlestown District Court, Anthony Clemente, always the smart guy, shows up to see if he can see Damien. And at that point, Anthony Clemente was arrested at the courthouse and It came out later that Anthony had, they called this guy Cleo, I think. Cleo had had an interview with a homicide detective previously, and he basically laid out what had happened. And he had said that Roman had reached for the fanny pack, and he thought it was an aggressive move for a weapon. He knows all those people in the booth were violent. He felt threatened. He pulled his gun And he started blasting, and here we are, basically, right? The problem was no gun was recovered from any of those people in the booth. So, you know, where was the threat? There really wasn't one, right? It's crazy. This is a crazy case, and it just happened in seconds. All those lives changed in seconds over this beef, this petty little beef. And the Boston police would later go on to say this was a. Petty Beef Among Local Morons, and that's about what it was, and this is kind of where Robert Luisi Sr. comes in. He wasn't a very well-liked guy in the North End, and you're a gangster and all that, right? And a lot of guys in that life are liked, some are feared, and some are hated, and I think Robert Luisi Sr. was in the latter category. He was known to use a knife on people. Back in the day, he was some type of bodybuilder and all this, so he was still pretty big. And he was kind of out of central casting for an Italian La Casa Nostra gangster, right? He was later described as loud, profane, and arrogant. He was called a bully, and this is by members of the media. And one guy who covered that life, he covered crime in Boston. He said Robert Luisi was not liked among other gangsters. He was so flashy. Like I said, he's out of central casting with the pinky rings and talking like a stereotypical Italian gangster. He thought he was walking the walk, talking the talk, whatever the saying is. But a lot of people who were actually in the life kind of considered him a buffoon, right? and the cops who covered them the FBI who covered them he wasn't very likable he just really wasn't so that's gangsters and cops but robert luisi senior was a made member and he had been with jerry and crew he had been a bookmaker under jerry and i don't know how well things were going for him he did have his own crew and he was a soldier i don't think he held any rank in the organization but i'm not entirely sure and his son Bobby was also in the life. And I alluded to this earlier that Bobby was very well liked. He was the exact opposite of his father. And Roman was actually his brother, but like half-brother, you know, because they had different mothers. Robert Luisi Sr. got divorced when Bobby Jr. there was like two years old. So Roman, Luisi, and Bobby were only half-brothers, I guess, but they were raised in the same family and all that, and I'm going to post some stuff that Bobby Luisi has said in interviews regarding this subject. He wasn't very close with his father. At one point, he calls Roman a killer, and Bobby Luisi ended up going away to prison after this sometime, I think, in the 2000s, and he found Jesus And now he does do interviews concerning La Casa Nostra and all that. And I'll put some of his stuff in the show notes. He's actually a pretty interesting guy. He's not a braggart like a lot of people in the mafia are. Like when I see interviews with Sammy the Bull Gravano, I think half of that is braggadocio, right? It's just the opposite with Bobby Luisi. He is kind of reserved, actually, and he seems to have a lot of regret for his lifestyle and what he put his family through you know it's actually kind of interesting he's kind of funny he actually has a dry sense of humor as well and you know I've seen him in an interview with this guy Gilliam and he answers the questions if you ask him he's gonna tell you you know he can't tell you anything that's gonna you know still implicate him but he didn't have a good relationship with his father and nothing good to say about him and I gotta say Nobody really did. Nobody had much good to say about Robert Luisi Sr. He was a bully, even among gangsters who were bullies for a living, right? But he didn't treat the people of the North End that well, and that goes against you pretty quickly, I think. But guys, I think I'm going to leave you here on this one, and next week we'll do a part two on this case, I'll tell you about what happened in court. The public reaction. There was a maelstrom over this case, my God. And I'll tell you what happened to all the defendants. And man, it was just a crazy case. But I'm going to leave you there, get on to the next one for you. And we'll have a part two of the 99 restaurant massacre next week. But listen, have a very Merry Christmas, please. If you're celebrating Kwanzaa, if you're celebrating Hanukkah, have a great time as well. Let's take care of each other out there and remember the spirit of the season. All right, guys, I'm on to the next one for you. Merry Christmas.